Welcome to Black Mountain College Radio, a podcast from Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center. I'm Jeff Arnell, Executive Director. Each program in our series focuses on various topics related to Black Mountain College and Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center. By presenting dynamic programming of this nature, we hope to deepen your relationship with both the college's vital legacy and the work of our Asheville-based museum. Hi, I'm Carmela Pampolonio, and I'll be your host for this debut episode of Black Mountain College Radio. This episode will feature two segments, the first being an interview with Julie J. Thompson, the curator of our exhibition, Begin to See, the Photographers of Black Mountain College. The second half will be dedicated to composer Lou Harrison, who taught at Black Mountain College. Lou Harrison's 100th birthday would have been May 14th this year, and the segment will be a celebration of his life and works. So we'll now go to Julie. Hi, Julie. Thank you for joining us for our first episode. I'm delighted to be part of this. Thank you. Absolutely. So could you start by speaking a little bit about your background and why you chose to curate a primarily photography-based exhibition? I'm an independent scholar and curator, and um, I do various projects in various ways. And so I've curated some exhibitions in the past, um, and I also have come to working on Black Mountain College through specific artists, um, and that's the artist Ray Johnson, who was a student at the school for three years. But I think in working on anything about Black Mountain College, kind of whole worlds open up to you. And that was the case with this exhibition, uh, Begin to See the Photographers of Black Mountain College. And kind of through the conference, the Black College conference that happens every year, previously I presented various papers or kind of essays on Ray Johnson. And I started getting really interested in photography, and in part because Ray also I kind of worked in photography some, too, at Black Mountain College, um, and so I was wondering about that. But I just really wanted to find out more, and so first this kind of started with a, a presentation about Harry Callahan, Aaron Siskind, and Arthur Siegel teaching during the 1951 summer session, and I just realized there was so much material that I kind of I, I proposed an exhibition to the Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center, and just kind of, I think, because I knew people from presenting at the conference for so many years, um, they were really receptive to the idea. And two years after it was proposed, the exhibit happened. Awesome. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the genesis and evolution of the photography program at Black Mountain College. I know that at the time, Joseph Albers said that photography is still a child among the crafts, which makes BMC seem even more progressive for having a photography program at the time. Completely. I think photography is still very much during this time, and we're talking, you know, 1930s, 1940s, finding its place in the arts and also in art education programs throughout the United States. Um, and so Albers is really a key player in this. And I think I knew he had made photo collages kind of when I started this research and, and working on this topic, but I didn't know much more. And I did I knew about that because of a great presentation by Michael Beggs, um, who also has an essay in, in the catalog. So I knew Joseph Albers was engaged with photography, but kind of in research and in reading more, kind of this fuller picture emerges where he talks about photographs in his classes. So he kind of lets them in as one of the arts for students to engage and discuss. And then he has a bunch of interested students and students like John Sticks and Klaus Stoller who come to Black Mountain College with photographic experience in photography and also with darkroom equipment. And he actually starts a photo study group with some students in the late 1930s. In the 1940s, then he starts inviting various visiting photographers. And by the summer of 1944, 
at, for the Summer Art Institute, he's able to invite Joseph Breitenbach, and that kind of really kicks off the program. But in the summer before that, he actually gives this lecture, which is his only known lecture or writing about photography at Black Mountain College. And so I think it's it's just really interesting because photography was something that he explored a lot, but then he actually really advised students and kind of taught them, even though taught them informally, but he also made photography part of the curriculum. Hmm. Joseph Albers famously said that he wished to open eyes at Black Mountain College, and he was interested in cultivating a visual and aesthetic sensibility among his students. Could you speak about how the ways in which his interest in painting transferred over to photography? I think that is a topic that there's probably going to be a lot more to write about. Um, But I do think he was very maybe attentive to or interested in the ways the camera transformed what you saw. And so like his um, Matier studies that kind of take materials that he did and and students did that take different materials and make them look different kind of by their position of being next to each other. There's a photograph that Michael Bagby produced in his essay in the catalog of mud. But when Albers photographs mud through the camera, it takes on kind of this new form. And so it almost looks like bronze or, you know, you just really are attentive to the texture. And so I think there's an interest in formal qualities of things, the flattening effect of the camera, and the way that the camera allows Albers to see things differently. And so I think with some of his paintings that he made kind of inspired by architectural forms from his trips to Mexico, which he and Annie made six trips to Mexico while they were at Black Mountain College. Some of his seeing those sites through the camera, I think, you know, kind of leads to some of his ability to see the geometry that maybe then allows him to kind of really abstract it through his paintings. But again, I think there's this is kind of an area where I think more research is being done and we'll kind of learn more probably in some of the upcoming exhibitions too. Oh, that's very exciting. So about your exhibition... You divided it into multiple sections titled Available Light, Bearing Witness, Experimentation, Performing for the Camera, and Place. In another interview with Aperture Magazine, you spoke briefly of why you segmented the show this way, but I was curious if you could elaborate on the sections more, particularly experimentation and performing for the camera. Sure. You know, there's always various ways to organize an exhibition. Um, It seemed like themes were the right way to allow us to look at the photographs themselves and not, I mean, I want people to be aware of the photographers, but I also want to kind of this vibrancy of the energy of the various photographs to come through. But I think like a category like performing for the camera is one that's also this kind of quintessential category for the photographs that we know, if we know any photographs about Black Mountain College, and those are kind of Hazel Larson Archer's amazing photographs of Merce Cunningham dancing. He is dancing for her and her camera. You know, they are working together, they're collaborating, and they're stunning photographs because of this co-creation, but also kind of because they're set up in circumstances where the focus is entirely on the dancer and kind of his formal qualities as a dancer. Experimentation, I think, is really also was important. And, you know, we could have said just photo collages, but the experimentation was kind of bigger than that. And in looking at the photo, at the various photographs that exist, it really became clear that different people experimented with photographs in different ways. And it was kind of more of an individual sort of experimentation. So there is a photo collage by Joseph Albers that uses his contact prints glued onto a support board. And so that's kind of this 
collage, but it's a little bit different because it's working with the contact sheets. There's more people working with photograms, and we see that kind of where you put an object on photosensitive paper and expose it to light in various ways. Ray Johnson kind of does it with some sort of drawing on a transparent surface. And Hazel Larson Archer uses kind of natural materials, as well as there's also the variation of Sue Weil making kind of a cyanotype print. But those she first learned kind of from a technique that her grandmother had used with a glass negative and a portrait onto blueprint paper. And that was a technique that Sue Weil knew about, and she introduced it to Robert Rauschenberg. And while it was a technique they experimented with kind of after they left Black Mountain College, when Rauschenberg comes back to Black Mountain College in 1951, he really gets involved in photography. So I think that complicated history is a part of also all of these ideas being spread about um, through Black Mountain College and through people who knew each other. There's also solarization comes through. Some other, Joseph Breitenbach was experimenting with all sorts of different techniques. And while there's an early photograph by him, you know, if he was talking to students about photography, it would have been very easy for him to be referencing other things he did. Um, he even tried to photograph smell and make the smell come through in photographs. And so, but, you know, I mean, it's a really unique kind of individually driven approach to experimentation that was just really exciting to see how how many different ways people were experimenting with things. So one last question. Many people have sort of an idealized image of what Black Mountain College was really like. With this photography exhibition, did you find yourself wanting to play into this or to show the college as it really was or both? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think one thing, you know, that in working on Black Mountain College, I've come to realize is it was a different college every semester. And you might even go as far as saying every month, every week, and every day, and every hour. But I do think we always need to acknowledge that because sometimes people were just there for a week. Sometimes they were there for a few days. Sometimes they're there for a whole semester, sometimes for many years. So I think there is this tendency to think of Black Mountain College kind of as you know, a college or a place, but it's, it was really many, many colleges and many places, um, kind of depending on who was there at any moment. So I, I think I've learned that, and I'm, I'm so glad I have learned it in trying to take on a topic like this, just because I do think we know so much about Black Mountain College because of the photographs, but I wanted to go a lot deeper with who are these people making these photographs? How are they seeing things in their own individual ways? And what is their own engagement and relationship to photography? And I think I was just really surprised. A lot of these people had a really deep engagement with photography, which was really exciting to kind of find out in this research. So I think in putting together the exhibition, I wanted to include photographs that were known, like Jonathan Williams' wonderful photograph of Joel Oppenheimer and Francine Duplessis-Gray that's known as Beauty and the Beast, where he's grimacing at the camera. And again, that's one of those performing for the camera iconic photographs of Black Mountain College. But I also really wanted to, you know, show some of his other photographs and put together what his engagement with photography was, because it had a lasting influence on his entire life, which he did many things. But also, it's really good to understand what he did with photography and, and all of these individuals did in photography, as well as the many other things they did. Yeah, and you definitely did a great job with that, too. I think that's probably a very apt way of looking at the college, recognizing that there was a pluralism rather than a single college. 
And I think that's part of when people were invited to teach and how they taught their class was really up to them. And that is fascinating. And it's fascinating to kind of also explore in the archives. All right. Well, thank you, Julie, for taking the time for this interview. And I will see you on Saturday, May 20th at 3 for your gallery talk. Sounds great. Thanks, Carmelo. Bye. In this centennial segment of our first episode, we're celebrating and reflecting upon the life and works of Lou Harrison, who would be celebrating his 100th birthday on May 14, 2017. Lou Harrison was born in 1917 in Portland, Oregon. He was a composer and a student of Henry Cowell, Arnold Schoenberg, and K.P.H. Notaprojo. He's known for assimilating aspects of non-Western music into his compositions, such as his utilization of Javanese gamelan instruments and styles. He was also a very outspoken pacifist and gay rights activist. In San Francisco in the 30s, Lou Harrison studied composition and counterpoint under composer Henry Cowell, who helped inspire him to develop percussion-oriented works using unconventional materials. Here he met and befriended John Cage, who was also a protege of Cowell. Seeking to expand the current musical topography, Cowell developed the string piano technique, where the pianist would reach inside the piano to pluck, scrape, sweep, and mute the strings directly. Thus it was Cowell who inspired John Cage's prepared piano technique, where Cage would meticulously insert nuts, bolts, plastic, pieces of rubber, and other items on top of and between the strings to achieve what he referred to as an exploded keyboard. These unconventional extended techniques not only expanded the percussive, timbral, and lyrical possibilities of the piano, but they placed a a strong emphasis on percussion and composition. Cowell had an interest in tapping Asian music sources for inspiration, such as the Javanese gamelan, which spread to Lou Harrison and John Cage. For Cage, this is evidenced in his Sonatas and Interludes, written between 1946 and 1948, where the sharp, shimmering, and rattling sounds of prepared piano often unabashedly resemble the varied textures of gamelan. For Harrison, this is evidenced in many works, one of which being his 1973 Concerto for Organ and Percussion. In this piece, you can hear him expounding upon Cowell's interests, not only of gamelan timbres and rhythms, but of tone clusters, as Harrison actually hit the keyboard with blocks of wood so as to hurl dense throngs of inharmonic sounds into the mix. Harrison and Cage collaborated on a percussion piece titled Double Music, which premiered in San Francisco on Harrison's 24th birthday in 1941. 
1942, Harrison moved to Los Angeles to attend UCLA, where he took lessons from Arnold Schoenberg, who introduced Harrison to his own 12-tone technique. In 1943, Harrison moved to New York City and worked as a music critic for the Herald Tribune, and there he was under the tutelage of composer and critic Virgil Thompson. It was Thompson who gave Harrison a copy of Harry Parch's book, Genesis of a Music, which imbued Harrison with the desire to write music in just intonation, a tuning technique where the frequencies of notes are mathematically related by small whole number ratios in order to achieve more consonants. Harrison also worked at editing the scores of composer Charles Ives, and conducted the first performance of Ives' Symphony No. 3, which won Ives the Pulitzer Prize. Ives gave half the prize money to Harrison. During this period, Harrison was supporting and championing the works of composers such as Edgar Varese and Carl Ruggles. However, the stress of his New York lifestyle and the musical rat race eventually became too much for Harrison, and in 1947 he suffered a nervous collapse and was admitted into a mental hospital for almost a year. This had sort of a cathartic effect on Harrison's music, as elements of dissonance were replaced with open and melodic thematics, such as in his 1948 Suite No. 2 for Strings. It was John Cage who recommended Lou Harrison to Black Mountain College to help his friend recover from the stress of living in New York City. Harrison taught at the college in 1951 and 1952. In 1953, a revitalized Lou Harrison returned to California, moving into a hilltop house in Aptos, where he lived for the remainder of his life. 
He worked as a park ranger, composing when he could, and he received commissions periodically. Soon he became a senior scholar at the University of Hawaii in 1963, and he taught music at San Jose State College from 1967 to 1980. He was a visiting professor at Stanford University in 1974, and he held other positions at the Universities of California and Southern California. He was the Darius Milhoud Professor of Music at Mills College from 1980 to 1985, and in 1983 he went to New Zealand as a senior Fulbright Fellow. Although he was heavily influenced by Asian music, Harrison didn't visit the continent until 1961 with a trip to Tokyo. That same year, he received a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation that allowed him to study Korean music in Situ. He also went on to study in Taiwan. Back in the States, Lou Harrison and his partner William Kolvig constructed their own American gamelan, as they called it, out of resonating aluminum keys and tubes, oxygen tanks, brake drums, and other items not usually considered to be musical. Lou Harrison's incorporation of prepared and non-musical instruments and his marrying of Western and Eastern elements shows that he was a composer who genuinely sought to expand the musical vernacular of his time. He pushed back against aesthetic enculturation and attempted to suggest to the listener that their musical dialect can always be expanded upon. Here's to you, Lou. This is Carmelo Pampolonio, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Black Mountain College Radio. More episodes are planned for the near future, and will include more interviews, arts updates, historical segments, and even an audio tour sound collage of samples taken from the historic Lake Eden campus. For more information, go to blackmountaincollege.org.